Hi, this is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, our guest is Jessica Adams, who is Director of Regulatory Affairs for Telefarm and has been with them for the last three years. She obtained her Doctorate of Pharmacy in 2009 and is licensed in Texas, California, and New York. Jessica, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to start with asking you some questions about Telefarm. Can you tell us a little bit about the company? Absolutely, and thank you for having me here today, Becky. So Telefarm is a software solution that is used in the process of telepharmacy. It basically connects a host pharmacy to a telepharmacy location. So our software kind of comes in after the adjudication process with insurance and then enables the pharmacist and the pharmacy technician as well as patients to interact kind of virtually. Thank you very much. And am I correct in remembering that Cardinal Health actually bought the Telefarm company several years ago? Yes, I did. We were acquired by Cardinal Health, I believe, back in 2016. Yeah. Very good. And how long has Telefarm been a company? Since 2012. So Roby Miller, who is still included or part of the Telefarm family, actually created Telefarm back in 2012 in response to what he had seen in rural America and what he personally experienced with his family and their ownership of pharmacies. That's right. Didn't they have like four pharmacies in the state of Iowa that they consolidated? Yeah, so they had six rural retail pharmacies in eastern Iowa. And when these pharmacies were not providing enough business to cover the expenses, Roby kind of thought of this model and thus created Telefarm. That's awesome. I've had a couple of representatives with Telefarm that I've spoken with over the years. And what has really fascinated me is the passion behind the employees that I've met at Telefarm, knowing that it started out as a family owned business. And really, you guys are not really what I would consider a vendor, even though you are for a software, you're, you're so passionate. And I've seen so many things. I get your, your monthly, um, I get your monthly newsletters and Mm -hmm. there's so much information about pharmacy deserts. And that translates with what we're seeing in the closure of rural hospitals all across the country that it's, it's amazing to me to see these changes and the way that you have dealt with those issues and created a very successful business model from it. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's kind of cool because it did start off as a family business. And we have, I think, at least 20 members on our team. I'm one of two people that are on the regulatory side, but it is very much, as you said, the passion and performance kind of leads in hand in hand with the software. And all of us serve kind of a different purpose. On my end, I help with the regulatory strategy and getting more states approved, answering questions for our customers, whatever it may be. And I completely agree with you. Access to pharmacy services is something that's definitely lacking across the country. And all of us that work at Telefarm very much have a passion and proven expanding it however we can. Whether you be an engineer, a product software developer, marketing side, myself and regulatory, we all kind of have that common thread. Very cool. So what are your rural roots that brought you to Telefarm? My personal rural roots? Yeah. Um, well, I was originally born in New York in a small town, probably a good hour and a half, two hours from New York State. And I personally recall my mom having to leave work and take me to a doctor's appointment. And then by the time we finished all of that, she did not have time to take me to a pharmacy. So we usually have to wait the next day. And all of that because everything was 
definitely not convenient, but you know, across town in a different town. So I can truly appreciate what it's like living in a rural area and not having convenient access to medical services in addition to pharmacy services. And to further that, when I was working as a pharmacist actually behind the counter, there were many instances where I worked in a small town and we were the only access to pharmacy services for patients in that town. So it was kind of cool to be able to be the, the sole healthcare provider and have patients reach out to us if they had any questions. Yeah, that's awesome how our our lives sometimes shape our careers. For sure, absolutely. Do you have a favorite pharmacy conversion story that you'd like to share with our listeners? I do, actually. So when I first started in this position, my boss was very adamant about getting me used to public speaking and providing presentations. And one of my first large-scale presentations was actually for the Utah Pharmacy Association. So it was basically an overview of what telepharmacy is, what the national landscape looks like in terms of the regulatory language. And then I kind of narrowed it down to where Utah stood at that moment. And at the time, Utah did permit telepharmacy, but the language is a little bit more restricted than it is today. And so after the end of my presentation, a gentleman came up to me and asked me a number of questions and said he wanted to get involved and how could he do so? It would be great for a community he had in mind. Long story short, he ended up helping us improve the legislation in the state, getting a bill passed, and then updating some of the regulatory language of the Board of Pharmacy. And he ended up being the first telepharmacy that opened in the state under the new language, connecting this community to a pharmacy access that they did not have before. And to me, having worked as a pharmacist and counseling patients on a daily basis and providing them with you know, consultation services, whatever it may be, I definitely got feedback from them about how much it meant to them. This story seemed so different in that I was impacting so many people on a grander level. And it's just, even now I look back and I think the impact that I had on them and what the impact that will be moving forward is just astronomical. And that's one thing that I very much enjoy about this position. Absolutely. I can certainly understand that. So we've talked a little bit about rurality and what I'll call pharmacy deserts. Do you guys have a definition for a pharmacy desert? We do. And it really kind of just varies based off of what area you're looking at. I can say the term was originally coined by Dima Cato out of Chicago, Illinois. And basically, she did a study looking at pharmacy access points in an urban setting. And from that, we kind of took the definition of a rural pharmacy desert, kind of mixing it in with what the USDA considers a food desert. So if you were to kind of expand it and kind of lump everything together, it's generally a low access area to pharmacy services. So in a rural setting, that'd be any area that's more than 10 miles to the closest pharmacy. And then in an urban setting, that can be one mile with access to a car or 0.5 miles without access to a car or convenient transportation. Well, since you live in New York City, (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll pick on you a little bit. So do you actually own a car living in New York City? Of course not. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so how do, how many pharmacies are within, what, half a mile of you? Do you know? Oh, I don't even know off the closest, off of the top of my head. And I'm trying to think of the closest pharmacy. It's definitely a good two or three blocks away, mm-hmm. which would still take me a good 10, 15 minutes to get there. Yeah. Um, so as we try to explain to people, that may not seem very far, but if you have a disease state or some other things or disability that can limit your mobility, that 15 minutes can turn into quite the distance. And then you throw in rain, snow, or any of those other things that can further add to that. All of those things are hurdles that people in an urban setting can experience when trying to access pharmacy services. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking right now we're in in the height of spring and here in central Indiana, my allergies are driving me crazy. I mean, if I had asthma and I had to walk long distance to get to a pharmacy in an urban city, then that would definitely be hard to handle. Absolutely. And that's one thing that most people can think of is that one random time where they needed immediate access to some sort of medication, even if it's over the counter, and how the closest pharmacy to them was closed. I'm a mm-hmm. migraine sufferer, and I can tell you the number of times that I needed some sort of migraine medication, and I was never conveniently near a pharmacy. And if I was, they were closed. So mm-hmm. I then had to wait until the next day. Or I had to find one that actually had the medication in stock, whatever that may be. So it's definitely something that most people can relate to and can think of a story for themselves or a family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. So many people are impacted by that. Do you have, with, with some of the studies that you guys have done around pharmacy deserts, do you have any statistics about how many people lack convenient access to pharmacies? Yeah, so that study that I mentioned that actually coined the term of an urban pharmacy desert from Dee Macato, actually, I believe she found that more than 1 million residents in Chicago live more than one mile to the closest pharmacy. And another study out of Los Angeles that recently came out showed similar data that 2 million people live more than a mile to the closest pharmacy. And to me, that was astounding when you think how big that number is. And then, you know, similar cities, I'm sure you'd find similar data in terms of New York City, Detroit, San Francisco, any of your major cities we have in the United States would probably have similar findings. It's not just localized to those parts of the country. Wow, that is just mind-blowing. So you talked earlier about different states and how you've worked to change the language for telepharmacy and been a proponent for allowing remote pharmacy access. Can you talk about, well, we know that it started in Iowa based on the family business, and you've spoken about Utah. Can you kind of draw a map for us about how access to telepharmacy has spread across the country? Are there any other states that are holdouts? Yeah. So actually, telepharmacy in the United States has its origins with North Dakota. They were the first state to kind of do a pilot program that started in 2001. And then North Dakota State University did a study from 2002 to 2008. The goal of that study was to analyze the efficacy and safety associated with telepharmacy. At the end of that study, and just to comment, it included both retail and hospital settings, I believe 81 locations in total. At the end of that six-year study, they found that the error rate or the medication error dispensing rate in a telepharmacy was less than the national average at the time. So not only did that improve that telepharmacy was not only safe, but it's also an effective way to provide pharmacy services for those residents who are in a remote or a rural setting. Since that time period, Washington State quickly followed, as well as Alaska. And then in 2006, the U.S. Navy became the largest user of telepharmacy nationwide and actually even worldwide, because when you consider that setting, those Navy ships do not necessarily have a pharmacist on site. And so they utilize telepharmacy to dispense medications to their patients or their, you know, the shipmates, if you will. In terms of the most recent years, telepharmacies kind of followed the same pattern as telehealth. And that it kind of focused more in a rural setting. So a lot of your states in central United States and on the West Coast have kind of absorbed into the telepharmacy model. And it's more migrating to the east side, which you've seen with Indiana as a prime example. And the reason for that is the same idea of it was originally a rural health model or a rural health access problem. And that's definitely expanded to include more urban areas, as I've referenced with Los Angeles and Chicago. And so as of today, 25 states now permit the retail telepharmacy model that I mentioned that Roby and his family created with the telepharm software model. 
That's amazing. So for our listeners that might not be familiar with the term telepharmacy, can you explain exactly what that means? Yeah, so telepharmacy, to give kind of the loose definition, as we found over the past couple of years, and especially with COVID, telepharmacy can be broken down into several different models. The NABP, or the National Associations of Boards of Pharmacy, loosely defines telepharmacy as the provision of pharmacy services by way of telecommunications and info technology to patients at a distance. And I know that's a full, convoluted, long definition, but basically providing pharmacy services to patients remotely or who are in a different location than you are. For the retail model, it's basically taking that concept of remote supervision and kind of expanding upon it. So if you walk into a traditional retail pharmacy setting, the pharmacist is on site. The only difference in a telepharmacy setting is the pharmacist is at a different location reviewing those prescriptions remotely through technology. So on the pharmacy, from the patient perspective, when you walk in, you'd speak to a technician, they still process your prescription as they normally would. All of that information is sent electronically to the pharmacist who reviews it and then verifies it and marks it for counseling so that when you return to the telepharmacy in your remote setting, the technician will instruct you to speak to the pharmacist at a consultation window. Once they complete all of that through HIPAA compliance software, you are then instructed to go back to the register where you can complete your transaction and then move on to the rest of your day or whatever that may be. What is the optimal ratio of one pharmacist to a farm tech in a retail store? That really kind of varies according to the state and how they decide to set up their regulatory framework or even their language and statute. Some have said it matches exactly what you may see in a traditional pharmacy setting, whether that be a ratio or they don't have one at all. So it really truly varies according to the state and how they want to set it up. You mentioned COVID. How has COVID changed the world of telepharmacy? That is a great question. Initially, when COVID first began, we were wondering if, you know, states that weren't on board would finally jump onto the telepharmacy bandwagon. And they certainly have in some aspects of it. Obviously, with social distancing, using whatever technology you can to separate people has been very helpful. But many states have not taken and absorbed the full telepharmacy model in terms of the remote verification of products, remote supervision of technicians, and remote counseling. They've usually taken only one aspect of that. Um, We have had more people that have embraced the concept of using technology since it's become a bigger part of our day-to-day. And then reaching patients that we never would have thought before has become kind of a nice bonus from it. So like remote counseling has become a bigger thing that people have used. Remote order entry and having technicians work from home has also become another facet that's associated with it. One thing that we found specifically with our model and that a lot of states already require a pharmacist to go on site at a certain frequency. So let's say it's once per month to do inspections and reconcile the controlled substance inventory, speak with patients to see how they were doing. But with COVID, a lot more of them have been going on site more frequently. And that's just to help provide more clinical services, especially with the uh, advent of the vaccine that's come into play and COVID testing. A lot of them have been able to do that since COVID has taken the forefront, if you will. Now, every state is different in how they're delivering the vaccinations for COVID-19. What's it been like across the country and your perspective in New York? How often have pharmacists been involved in that vaccine delivery method? Yeah, as you mentioned, that really varies per state. And I wish I could say I was as involved as I'd like to be as a licensed pharmacist. I am was formerly an immunization trainer, so I know the importance of having a pharmacist involved. From the Board of Pharmacy meetings that I've attended and the PrEP Act amendments that I know have come down nationally, pharmacy has been a big, big influence in this space. 
And I think that's one way that the public will have access to vaccines that they would not have before. I know with those amendments, they still require a pharmacist to be on site to provide that supervision if technicians are going to administer the vaccines. But it's definitely a vehicle that can be used that would not have been used before. So for example, if you've got a telepharmacy in a very rural setting, the pharmacist can now go on site and provide those vaccines when they're there. Whereas before that pharmacy may not have existed at all. So you're kind of tapping into those populations who may not have had any access at all to a COVID vaccine and now can. Although the schedule may be limited, they may now have access that they didn't have at all before. Let's talk about mail order as an option for patients who may live in a pharmacy desert. Yeah, so mail order is definitely a feasible option. It's a way for patients to get access to medications, especially some of their more chronic ones. The only issues that we sometimes see with that, and I recall also as well when I was working in a pharmacy setting, is if you need something acutely or for an emergency, mail order may not be the best option because you have to certainly wait a couple of days before you even receive it. There's also been recent challenges, as we all know, with the mail and delays with that. And then also temperature excursions in terms of keeping things the appropriate temperature to ensure medication stability. This is where telepharmacy certainly can play and be certainly a resource for those patients who rely on mail order. It's certainly an easier, convenient option, if you will, if you've got a pharmacy in town. And if a full-fledged traditional pharmacy is not an option, a telepharmacy can certainly be the way to address that. For me personally, I've experienced the beauty of mail order pharmacy with my parents. My dad has mid to late stages Alzheimer's and is on hospice. Mm -hmm. So having some of his prescriptions delivered via mail order is one less trip that my mom has to worry about finding someone to sit with him so she can go out to the pharmacy to pick up his medication. Yeah, and I will say a lot of patients do still rely on mail order. It's a great feature and a great option to have. With telepharmacy, though, you do have that FaceTime with a pharmacist still, which is kind of unique to telehealth. So although, you know, it might be through technology, you still can put a face to your pharmacy. And then you also could still have that relationship with pharmacy staff, which is kind of nice. Another benefit would also be some clinical activities that can be done at a telepharmacy because you're doing that face-to-face consultation. And even when a pharmacist is on site that you may not also have with mail order. That is true. What would you like to see for the future in regards to telepharmacy and helping those in pharmacy deserts? Great question. (laughs) Of course, it would be expansion to the other 25 states and other territories of the United States to permit telepharmacy. That'd be something that would be great. Not a day goes by that I get an email from someone or a question from someone of if it's permitted in their state, and they have numerous questions that follow us to why not. So it would be great if that was where that would headed. Also, if you could do telepharmacy across state lines, I think that would be very beneficial. We tend, well, to correct myself, with COVID, We've been restricted with travel, but we know normally patients go back and forth in between state lines. So ensuring that a patient who is maybe located in, and I'm a prime example, having been licensed in three separate states, if I go to Texas because I want to see my family, but my pharmacy is here in New York and I wanted to speak to my own pharmacist, the rules and laws may restrict or prohibit that. It just kind of varies according to state. And it'd be nice if there was some sort of consistency between the two. Also with that, I think it would be really cool to see what other uses of telepharmacy and telepharmacy software can come into play in the future. I know our company has thought of and brainstormed some ideas of where it could be headed and different utilizations and use cases for it. So for example, if you were to use like a hybrid model of telepharmacy where a pharmacist is on site some days, but they may not be in the dispensing process, they can provide more clinical services. What does that look like moving forward? Also, if you need specific services, so let's say it's... um, 
genetic testing or genetic pharmacogenetics, you know, where your medication comes into play with that, you may not have a provider that's local to you. So wouldn't it be great to speak with them, you know, if they're in a different state or in a different setting that you could get that specialized care that you need. And that same thing kind of applies to any disease state. If you wanted to speak to a um, pediatric specialist and you may not have one at the pharmacy that you're located at, wouldn't it be great to just kind of, you know, connect with someone across in a different area to get that specialized care you need? Mm-hmm. So of the three states that you are licensed, you've mentioned New York, where you live, mm-hmm. and Texas, where you have family. Mm-hmm. What about California? Why are you licensed in California? So I actually just moved from California a couple of months ago. So actually, the last time I practiced as a pharmacist behind the counter was in California. So I did, you know, graduation up until six or seven years in Texas, then a couple of years in California, and now New York. Very cool. So mm-hmm. since you've been with Telefarm for the last three years, does that kind of mean that you guys are a remote working company? For sure. So prior to COVID, a lot of my time was spent traveling across the country to various different stakeholders for telepharmacy. So whether it be state boards of pharmacy, pharmacy associations, whoever may have an interest in telepharmacy and they wanted a presentation on it. But when I was not doing that, I was definitely working from home. So I haven't experienced much of a change in my day-to-day remote aspect of work, other than I'm not living on a plane, if you will. But otherwise, yes, most of us are remote normally. Cool. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, I guess this has come up a couple of times in our conversation about each state being different and their Mm -hmm. laws about pharmacy. Is there a pharmacy compact? Not that I know of. It depends on, and this is where pharmacy gets a little interesting, topics may be similar in states, but they still have individual licensure requirements, whether it be for the pharmacy or pharmacist or even, you know, wholesale, whatever it may be. I know with COVID, there was talks and there did eventually happen of pharmacist licensure packs, but that was only during the beginning of COVID. And I honestly do not know where that stands now. I think there were still additional requirements you had to meet in order to be able to practice in another state, whether it be applying through the website online, but generally no, every state is independent. That's been one interesting sticking point with telehealth in general. There are multiple compacts out there for physicians, for nurses. Uh, I think I've seen for EMS, and I know that for telepsychiatry, for psychiatrists, there are compacts. And you mentioned that one of the early adopters of telepharmacy was the VA. Was that specific to one branch of the military? Yeah, it was with the Navy, the U.S. With Navy. the Navy, that's mm-hmm. right. So do you know if a pharmacist works for the Navy, are they able to see any veteran or active military personnel regardless of where they're located? You know, I honestly have no idea. I know they follow different laws and rules than, you know, practicing pharmacists in other states. That's a great question. But otherwise, I don't, I don't know. I would imagine because they cover the jurisdiction of the United States that it probably is not as descriptive as some of your mm-hmm. state language would be, but it's a good question. Yeah. Something interesting for our listeners if they want to go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So as we've been talking about the different states and the different language in the different states, what are some of the top concerns of state pharmacy boards in enacting legislation to allow for telepharmacy? Yeah, so they look at various different topics. Some of the more common parameters or categories they focus on, if you will, is some of the stuff you actually mentioned in terms of technician, pharmacy technician training and requirements for them to work in a location. 
What are some of the security parameters? What types of medications are you allowed to dispense? How close the nearest pharmacy can be? We refer to that as a mileage restriction. So for example, in Indiana, where you reside, they have a 10-mile mileage restriction, meaning there cannot be another pharmacy within a 10-mile radius of the telepharmacy. And that really varies per state. Some other parameters include how many locations a pharmacist can supervise, how many technicians a pharmacy can supervise, surveillance systems requirements. But those are some of the common things that a lot of the states kind of look at when creating their regular regulatory or statutory framework. That's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that is all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you'd like to bring up? Um, I would say if you're curious about telepharmacy, definitely pop into one. I will say the first thing that I noticed when I walked into one, having been a licensed pharmacist for 10 years, I was like, wow, this is exactly like a pharmacy. There's really no difference at all. And that's one of the first things our patients or patients who utilize a telepharmacy always comment on is that this is no different than a traditional pharmacy. It's very easy to use the iPad because a lot of us do that on a day-to-day basis, especially now with COVID. And they really notice no difference in the relationship that they have with their pharmacists and pharmacy staff members. So that's, I think that's what makes it kind of unique and kind of a cool option is that there's no difference at all. I think I saw a picture once of a closet that was turned into a telepharmacy. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I it know was we've had some small. I know we've had some unique, interesting use cases and ones that I've heard of as well as because it's 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 ultimately wherever you can provide pharmacy access and couldn't before, you know, and people have come up with some interesting use cases. Obviously, as long as you follow your state parameters with their rules and language, the rest is kind of up to you because it still is a pharmacy. So, you know, as long as you've got that running water hot and cold, refrigerator, whatever your state requires. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned several studies today. If you could send them to us, we'd love to include them in our show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to share those with you. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today, Jessica. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners will too. Thank you, Becky. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, for our listeners, I want to thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you'd like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes below. Also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our editor and producer, Caroline Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy and the Office for Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director for the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy or position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.